Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Dr Ingrid Katz used 240 characters to highlight the othering of medical research from characters not defined as Western. Her frustration came after the US, the UK and other countries imposed a travel ban to and from South Africa after the researchers there announced the COVID-19 variant Omicron. Dr. Katz is the Associate Faculty Director of the Harvard Global Health Institute and an Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. In early January, I asked Ingrid why she tweeted about South Africa's treatment in light of the Omicron discovery. So one of my major collaborations is actually in South Africa. I've worked in South Africa for, gosh, well over a decade now. I have a lot of close colleagues and friends there. So I'm deeply invested in the country and I've been very lucky to work with people who have focused primarily on the HIV response. I've had the pleasure and kind of the awesome privilege of watching how people have managed to handle another global pandemic that we're still dealing with. And South Africa is the country with the most HIV infections globally. And so I was following the the work that was being done. I've been involved in the COVID response from the beginning, um, as many of us have been in the world of infectious diseases. And South Africa in particular had been in my mind. And when the news was breaking that there was clearly a new variant that was coming out, and that investigators were identifying it, doing sequencing in South Africa, I found that to be both just incredibly profound and also indicative of this investment that the South African government has made really largely because of the HIV epidemic, that they've invested in science and technology And this is exactly what we need to be knowing. We need to be identifying these variants as they pop up all over the world. I actually didn't assume it had come from South Africa. I assumed it had been picked up in some region in in that area, but that South Africa has the scientific capability to run those sequences. They also were collaborating with scientists from Botswana as well, who also are leaders in this work. And so they were able to work together to quickly get that sequence out and send it out to the world. And I think that's an amazing technology and we should all be grateful to those scientists for identifying this variant and then letting us all know about what we should be thinking about right now. Quite interesting because I I went and found your tweet and then read a number of the responses. And from what you're saying, some of the negative responses seem to have misunderstood what you were saying. Well, it surprised me at all that it went viral. I mean, you know, these things are so mercurial. You put something out there, you know, you maybe get 30 likes or something and you think, oh, that's nice. Some people saw this. And then you put something out and I don't even know how many people ultimately responded, but it was enormous. It got picked up by a um, famous person here in Hollywood, a woman named Ava DuVernay, who retweeted it. And I think that's where everything just exploded, which is interesting in and of itself. But I think more importantly, 
the reaction, I, I was saying to someone, you know, it's almost like a Rorschach test when you see these responses. They almost seem like people are seeing whatever they want to see in a tweet. And so my intention with the tweet was merely to give thanks to our colleagues in South Africa and Botswana who were working so diligently to give us this information that would be critical really for the world to know. I was feeling dismayed by the fact that we were now imposing travel restrictions on the entire region of sub-Saharan Africa. When it was clear that this when once variants are identified, they're not localized anymore. And we know from how COVID is transmitted, it is extremely infectious and it transmits when people are asymptomatic. And so that is what has made this whole pandemic so confounding because you can't wrap your arms around something that's not visible or there yet, right? We know that things are transmitting constantly. The virus is transmitting constantly without us understanding or knowing when it's happening. So all we can do are the effective mitigation strategies that we know, masking, vaccination, you know, ventilation, other things that we know are effective, but fundamentally this virus is traveling in a way faster than we can keep up with it. So in my mind, when this investigative team, when these researchers said, aha, we see a new variant, I knew at that point, oh, okay, well, this is clearly spreading all over now. This is not just contained. This is not like other, and we've been knowing that for years, right? Ever since this showed up, probably within the first few months, we were able to understand this transmits um, when people are asymptomatic. This transmits very easily. So anyone who was following this knew this is probably widespread. And then to see a travel restriction put down on Sub-Saharan Africa, to me, felt like a punishment. Like this is, you've called this out. You were the canary in the coal mine you're not allowed to come here anymore. And that's concerning to me. It feels arbitrary. It doesn't feel grounded in science. And many of us know that that is going to impose some severe economic restrictions on that region when it was almost certain, and it was confirmed days later that it was already in Europe. And it was probably in the United States. We just hadn't sequenced it yet. So again, I said that, thinking we owe them a debt of gratitude. Do not punish them for this. And, you know, of course, as these things go with Twitter, people started saying whatever they wanted to say. And I didn't really take any of it particularly personally, because one thing I've seen in this moment is everyone is feeling whatever they're feeling about this. I try to stay with the science. I try to stay with the data. And I try to discuss things that I think are accurate and data-driven and recognize when things, I try to call things out. If I think that they're not fair or acceptable or embedded in a legacy in my mind of colonialism, in this case, it felt almost like a neo-colonial moment to me. I'm going to, for a moment, play devil's advocate and say, like some of the people who responded to your tweet have said, but hang on a second, other countries have imposed travel bans on Western countries. I mean, the travel ban in of itself is nothing in terms of COVID-19, is nothing new. 
what was it really then that hit you as hard as it did when it was South Africa? So I'll say that, you know, travel bans can be effective in certain contained circumstances. So if we have a sense that we can essentially wrap our arms around this, if we're able to catch something very early and contain it, then there, it, there may be a role for a travel ban. And we can say that perhaps in circumstances where we really have a sense of how quickly something is transmitting and we know kind of the edges of it, then a travel ban could essentially kind of pump the brakes hypothetically. And again, if we, if we were sequencing every single virus that was tested every single day, we might have that information, but that's obviously enormously expensive and it, it would be an impossible feat around the world. So while travel bans have some role in public health responses, I haven't really been all that convinced they're that effective in the COVID response in general. I think in particular in this setting, I am aware of the dedication of these South African investigators and what they have put in to get there, to get to this level of understanding scientifically and to share this information and to be completely transparent. So to me, this felt a bit arbitrary and somewhat punitive. And the fact that this travel ban wasn't lifted for weeks also felt arbitrary and somewhat punitive. And again, I think there can be roles for travel bans in terms of pumping the brakes a bit. If you really have a sense it's contained in a singular region, for example, when the pandemic started in China, maybe that could you could justify let's pump the brakes a little bit, knowing that it still is probably going to spread all over the world. I think in that region in particular, there is a legacy of colonialism and in this case, kind of a neo-colonialist bent and we don't have to look that far back in our recent history of presidents when they were describing certain regions of the world with a foul term that I found completely derogatory and demoralizing and as a citizen of this world, completely unacceptable. There are not countries that are less than or better than. We're, this is a moment where we're all in this together. And if we're not pulling together to support one another now, I don't know when we will. Unfortunately, not everybody sees the world the way you do, but it does make me want to ask and want to find out more. What is this them versus us? And, and why is it so prevalent, do you think? I think this unfortunately can happen in circumstances where people feel vulnerable and scared. I think it's rooted in fear essentially, and this vision of the other. And we've seen this, unfortunately, in the US play out many times over in terms of how immigrants have been treated recently. And in the context of the COVID pandemic, I've seen this more than ever, a kind of a heightened nationalism that I've seen. And other kind of can be any number of individuals, but often it's people who are of different backgrounds, ethnicities, races, that people feel could perhaps somehow unleash something. And I think, again, this is where I find this to be particularly troublesome. And for those of us who have dear friends and colleagues who work in this region, we see it playing out firsthand, 
where we have set up a system of inequity right from the get-go in terms of our response to this COVID pandemic. And it's not just about travel bans, it's about who gets access to vaccines. I was just looking at the latest data to see that we're still under 10% of people in low-income nations have had even a single dose of a vaccine. And meanwhile, we have nations where they're saying, of course, boosting, maybe we need four shots now. You know, so that is an inherently inequitable situation when we have certain regions in the world that have easy access to vaccinations and certain regions that do not. And this plays out again and again and again. And we saw this with the HIV response that we had essentially turned HIV from a death sentence into a chronic disease in the US where people could get on treatment and live a long and healthy life. And meanwhile, people were dying in South Africa and in Sub-Saharan Africa throughout and other regions of the world. So that's why it, it just becomes particularly troubling. We see this play out over and over again when it comes to global threats like this. And it's a very much an us versus them mentality. And I find that deeply concerning. I mean, as you say, it's a global threat. It's a, a very global attitude to have this them versus us divide. Where do you think the roots of this occurred in healthcare and in medicine? Well, we don't have to look too far back in our own history in the United States to see the mistreatment, particularly of people of color throughout our medical system. And even to this day, we see different outcomes in terms of mortality and, and health for people who are certainly people of color, people who are not necessarily speaking English as a first language. We know that exists right now, even to this day in the US. And you know, I think, unfortunately, there are people who have used medicine and science to justify falsely treating certain people in a different way, that those quote unquote people are not really fully human. But it's rooted in racist ideology, it's rooted in a legacy of colonialism to allow for exploitation, essentially, to enable people to essentially exploit others and have kind of a clean conscience that this person isn't really a full human being, which we know is obviously not true. And I think, unfortunately, you know, we, while I would like to say that we have left colonialism behind, we still have a lot of policies in place globally that essentially keep certain sections of the world wealthier by exploiting other sections of the world that may be resource rich, you know, they might have oil or they might have other natural gems, diamonds, et cetera, that the rest of the world wants and exploit the labor in those countries. And that essentially perpetuates this system of inequality. And through health and medicine, I mean, again, everyone says, oh, pandemics like this are the great equalizer because we're all vulnerable. And I would argue, and many of my colleagues would argue, actually, it just shines a spotlight on the inherent inequalities that are already there. It essentially amplifies them. It doesn't rectify them. And that's where we need to, as physicians, as public health professionals, as other people engaged in this, use these moments to say this is not 
equitable and it's not fair and we can't do business like this anymore. I'd like to understand from your perspective as a scientist, as a researcher, as an academic, why you feel there is so much more weight and respect given to research and medical breakthroughs that come from the global north than from the global south? Yes, well, I mean, again, I think this is rooted in a history of colonialism and a lack of investment previously in building up that scientific capacity. And I think more than ever, we need to be focusing on building that scientific capacity, building that medical capacity in country so that we are not always looking to very specific countries to lead the way. I'll say even here in the United States, in many ways, we've had a failed public health response. And it's not any individual's fault. It's just that we've had decades of underinvestment in public health. And simultaneously, we have a place of very high value here on science and medical breakthroughs. So what we have is this interesting juxtaposition of incredible science being done. Vaccines that are developed in a year is truly unprecedented. And then we have this very lagging public health response that again magnifies inherent inequalities because we know that people of color, people in poor communities have suffered more during this pandemic in the United States. And so what we need to do in a way is conceptualize some of the areas that we haven't really fully addressed here and think about them globally because more and more we are so interconnected. And I think that's the thing that I really want to be clear. This isn't the 1918 flu pandemic. And I know a lot of people have tried to make that comparison. Of course, there are certain aspects of it that ring true. But in 1918, you could not get on a plane and fly around the world in a matter of a day. That's just not what was feasible or happening at that time. So in that case, maybe there were ways to kind of contain it more easily, but that's not the case now. Anyone can travel all over the world, particularly if you are from a region that's wealthy and spread a virus. And that's gonna continue in the future. So we need to now more than ever invest in infrastructure in countries throughout the world where we can be supporting one another, both through our science, our medicine, our technology, and also our public health responses. How do we decolonize healthcare? I think it starts with the right intention. And the right intention is to empower regions that have been previously diminished to lead. And so if you can do that and support that effort financially, which I would argue is owed to these countries, then I think you're starting in the right place. The intention needs to be that we are in this together, that there are some incredible scientists and physicians and public health experts all over the world. And we need to support those efforts to build up infrastructure within their own countries so that if you're a young child growing up in South Africa, you can see a future for yourself staying in South Africa as a leader there, as a scientific leader or public health leader that's going to bring the next generation forward. We need to ensure 
that young people see a pathway within their own country. And that means they have to have our global support in building the programs, the medical schools, the public health schools to support these young people as they move forward. Because I fear in far too many countries, the people who excel often are the ones who have to leave and may or may not return to that country of origin because there aren't the opportunities for them there. There are some who would say, but hang on a second, we can't even pay for healthcare in our own country. Or for example, the NHS is at breaking point. How do we then justify taking the money from our countries and investing it in the healthcare systems of poorer nations? Yeah. I mean, again, I would say that still slips back into the us versus them mentality and speaks to a vision that's based a bit in a model of scarcity. And what we need to be thinking about is using a model in a way of abundance that we recognize, obviously there are finite costs associated with building this up. But if we are going to think long-term investing long-term, I'm not talking about these immediate, because I think a lot of times these things lead to immediate responses and then a diminished interest, an immediate response, diminished interest, right? That is costly because we have not invested in any resources to help secure our future. But if we were to take a long-term view and say, right now we are dealing with COVID, but it is very likely we will have another pandemic coming down the pike and we cannot sit here and afford to ignore it. Essentially, what I would argue is there is a cost benefit right now in investing in our future. And if we choose to ignore it, it will be more costly as we come back around. And to think about where we're at now and how much better we could have done if we decided 20 years ago to make these necessary investments. And so I would argue that we just need to completely turn this model on its head and start thinking now for the future and investing accordingly. This podcast that we're recording is part of a series called the Social Innovation, the Social Ideas podcast. So of course, I feel compelled to bring it back to social innovation which is about dealing with the wicked problems of the world, which is about trying to find equity where generally there is inequity. Do you know of, are you aware of, are you involved in anything now that is actually beginning to to do, as you say, which is turn the, the previous model on its head, make a change, make greater healthcare opportunities available for everybody? Yeah, I mean, I'm part of a larger movement of people who feel deeply invested in this. I would actually point to the HIV response as an incredible way to take a terrible situation and turn it into something positive. Because it was through that lens of HIV that essentially large investments have been made in Sub-Saharan Africa. And to be honest, that is very much why we have such incredible scientists anchoring in that region who were able to then report back on this variant. And big investments through programs like PEPFAR and the Global Fund and others came in. I would argue we addressed it too late because far too many people died, but we did 
focus on spending some resources in these regions to build up programs that I would say have helped grow scientists in that region of the world. So again, I'm part of a much larger movement, but you, you don't have to look too far to see what incredible impact that has made. I mean, if you go into hospitals in South Africa, they used to be full of people who were essentially given a death sentence, young people who were dying. Physicians were at their wit's end because there was nothing they could do for these patients. Now you walk into these hospitals and if you're in an HIV ward, there's basically nobody there. That's tremendous. And we can do that. We have the capability as a world if we unite together. And I think to be part of bigger movements like this is really critical. There are also amazing NGOs and nonprofits and other groups that are really thinking very creatively in this space. But at the highest level, investments like that are what make a huge difference. I have one more question for you. How does the monetization and the commodification of healthcare create greater inequities? Unfortunately, here in the US, it's a very different system from what you have in the UK. And even in countries where they have national healthcare systems, obviously there's still tiers, right? People can pay for additional services here and there and, and whatnot. I think that is the model that unfortunately leads to the, the vision of kind of the us versus them mentality. And I think when healthcare, which I would consider a human right, is monetized, it becomes a commodity. And this is really about a public good. I didn't go into medicine to provide a commodity. And I think we need to be thinking about all the aspects of healthcare and medicine as a public good. And we need to be understanding that if we want to preserve our being on this earth and to advance medicine and science, we have to be thinking about it that way. And it has to be based in a human rights response, essentially, and a recognition that as healthcare providers, as a physician, when I speak with a patient, my goal is to ensure that I provide the best care for that patient possible, regardless of their economic status. And that's how we need to be approaching healthcare writ large. And I really hope that for the future, as we continue to advocate for these issues and, and these young people who are so idealistic, I hope, fingers crossed, they continue to push us forward in this that we can continue to make change in this space because change is definitely needed. That was Dr. Ingrid Katz, Associate Faculty Director of the Harvard Global Health Institute and an Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and how to apply for our master's programme by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.